You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. And so we've been in the book of Philippians the last few weeks, and I've been uh, doing a series called Thinking on These Things. And how many know it's difficult to keep your mind focused on good things? How many know it's difficult that even uh, if you've been sick, if you got COVID and you kind of recovered from it, that sometimes your thought process might be a little slowed by that, and there's some forgetfulness involved, that sometimes the words escape you, sometimes uh, important dates and names escape you, and there's a little bit of that fog that kind of hangs around after the fact. So sometimes we need to be reminded of what to think about. Scripture's good at that. We need to be reminded about what's important and what to dwell our thoughts and our attentions and our affections on. And so in the first week, we talked about uh, thinking about the gospel. Paul was in prison, but his thoughts were on the church and on the work of the gospel, and his mind went to them instead of thinking on himself. We also talked about thinking about life and death last week and how Paul said to live as Christ and to die is gain, and especially in a world that is obsessed with not dying, uh, how important it is to be able to have a, a, a godly concept of life and death. That if we live, we're living for the God's purposes, and if we die, we'll be with the Lord, and that's a wonderful thing. Even though death is not something that we're looking forward to, it is something that we have an assurance in, in Christ. This week I'll be talking about thinking of others. And so let's look at Philippians chapter 2, and it kind of hinges on a verse that's very important that I want us to draw our attentions to this morning. In Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 3 and 4, and we'll be looking through the whole chapter as well, but Paul says this in verses 3 and 4, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. So I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul's writing the Philippian church, and he says that our uh, focus, we should not be looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. In other words, we're thinking not about ourselves all the time. We are thinking about people. We're thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thinking about God's purposes for us, and we're focusing our attention on those things. Let's look at the entire chapter together, starting verses 1 through 4. There are certainly several things that Paul talks about here. And one of the things that Paul talked about at the end of chapter 1 is affirming and emphasizing the need for the church to be in unity, to be unified in one heart, one mind, and one spirit. Looking at verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being in accord of one mind, and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, which means humility, let each esteem each other better than himself, and let each of you look out not for his own interests, but the interests of others. Paul's in prison, he's in writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, listen, if you've gotten anything out of my ministry, if you've found any comfort or consolation in Christ, any unity in the Spirit, any uh, uh, bond with my love, he says, make my joy complete by getting along with each other. 
Get along with each other. Communicate with each other. Be in unity with one another. He says, you know, that would give me great joy to know that the church that I helped establish is not at each other's throats, but is working together for the gospel and the furtherance of God's kingdom. And how many know that you can't do that if you're fighting with each other? You can't further the kingdom of God. You can't have a team that's successful if they're fighting. You can't have an organization that's successful if there's fighting. So there needs to be a unity in the spirit. To be of one mind and one spirit working together for, for the faith in the gospel. That mean, this means that Paul wants them to work together and work out their differences so they can focus on God's work. And he gives them directions on how to go about doing this in verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now he says, don't do things just for vain glory or credit. Don't do things just so you can be recognized. Don't even do things so you can pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I, I volunteered at the Rotary Club, or I helped clean up the community, or, you know, I did pastor appreciation luncheon, and, you know, I served 50 or so people on that. And don't even give yourself the credit in that. Like, do it all for God and do it all for others instead of seeking the glory or the credit. Listen, we all love affirmation, don't we? If we did a good job, and we know we did a good job, we want someone to say, good job. You're like, yeah, I know it's a good job. I've, I've been trying to show you it's been a good job this whole time. So we seek some kind of affirmation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that shouldn't be the motivation for why you serve God and why you serve others. He said, instead, do this in lowliness of heart. This essentially means humility. Do it humbly, esteeming others better than yourself. And that we shouldn't look for our own interests, but the interests of others. And there it is. The Church of Jesus Christ has to have people who don't just think about themselves, but one another too. So think about that for a moment. That humbly we come before God, and we're doing this not because we have some kind of need in our life that needs to be met, but we do it because we want to honor God and we want to bless God's people. And so the church has to care about each other and think of each other's needs and make it a priority to meet each other's needs, whether that be an emotional need where someone needs support and we're there for them, whether that be a spiritual need where someone needs prayer and that they need someone to come alongside them and just agree touching heaven concerning the situation, or whether they need a physical need in which they are actually in need of financial resources or just food for their table. We have to be considerate of each other's needs and prioritize one another's needs. What Paul is writing about, and you can write this down, is about unity and humility. Unity and humility. These two things go hand in hand, and you can't have unity when pride's in the way. The church is powerful when it's in unity. When it's united in its vision and mission for God, when it's united for the cause of spreading the gospel, the church is an unstoppable force for God's kingdom. Things get done when the church is in unity. Things happen when God's people are in unity. In prayer, when we are in unity, things happen. It moves the hand of God and we begin to see things happen. 
Look at the, the uh, day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It says that they were gathered together, 120 in the upper room, and, and this important distinction was mentioned there that they were all gathered in one accord. They were all gathered in unity, seeking the promise of the Father. And when they did, the Holy Spirit fell and it empowered them to do great things for the kingdom of God. The church is powerful when it is unified together with one heart, with one mind, and one spirit. For that to happen in the modern church, we must lay aside our agendas and focus on what God's will is and to focus on one another. That's what humility is. That's what lowliness of heart is. But when individuals in the church start to argue and fight with each other over not getting their own way or over who gets the credit or over things that they don't like, it leads to fighting and fighting grieves the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved, he can't work in his church. Have I got that? Makes you think twice about the way we deal with each other, right? Listen, we can get on each other's nerves. It happens. I may even get on your nerves. But how we handle it is the important thing so that we don't get so caught up in our own way that we lose sight of what is really important and it's God's way above ours. And God's way says, I set my own desires, my own pride, my own ego, my own desire for credit aside and instead I focus on the Lord. Christ is the head of his church. In another letter that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, he writes that Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. The, the uh, letter of 1 John, it says that we become sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, essentially becoming part of the family of God. Imagine Jesus being a parent over squabbling children who want their own way instead of his. Think about that for a minute. Remember being a parent and remember having your kids in the grocery store with you, and maybe they were of a younger age, and maybe they didn't want to be there, which I can understand, because grocery shopping is boring, okay? Or they see something that they want because they strategically put the candy right by the register, and all the little toys and the gum and the stickers by the register, and they walk by and they see it and they want it, and you say no, and then all hell breaks loose, right? Because they want to have a tantrum. Why? Because they want what they want so badly that they decide to make a scene right there. And, and it makes you feel really embarrassed as a parent, doesn't it? It kind of, you just want to just disappear. You want to just hide for that moment because you can't believe that this is happening to you. Because you know every other person that's walking by, every other parent that's walking by is kind of quietly judging you too. Saying like, you know, you just can't, look at that poor Mom, that poor dad, they can't get control of their kids when in reality their kids do the exact same thing in the grocery store, but it's not them, so they're happy about that. But imagine, if you will, the same thing, that, scene, that picture in your head, and imagine Christ trying to lead his church and being the head of his body and being the head of his family, and all his children are squabbling with each other about things they don't like, matters of political opinion or matters of uh, spiritual matters or what a person makes or what, how a person leads their family or the standards that they might have and they're fighting with each other or the church fights over the color of the carpet and he's going, what's going on here? You know, it brings, when, when children squabble and fight with each other, it brings shame on the parent. 
And so I want you to think about that. If Christ is our head, Christ is our Father, if, if, if He is the one that is guiding us and directing us, should we not also bring honor to Him by setting aside what we want and focusing on what He wants? When the church fights with each other, it's a bad example and nothing gets done. That's a bad example to the world around us. Unless we choose to have unity in the body, we cannot honor Christ. Infighting within a family brings no honor to the Father. If we truly want to honor Jesus, then we must exhibit unity and humility. This is done by not thinking of our own interests first, but thinking of others. We want to look up to the head of our fellowship, the head of our faith, and not look aside to one another and getting focused on that. So Paul encourages the Corinthian, the Philippian church, excuse me, to think of each other rather than themselves. And he goes on for another example to follow. If we look at verses 5 through 11, so let's just flip over to 5 through 11. And he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being made in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming, becoming the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. As I was preparing for this message on Sunday, I was listening to a preacher who had a, a great little breakdown of this little passage here about Jesus. And he broke it down in three things. He said that Jesus exemplified, number one, selflessness. Selflessness. And we'll get into that. When you think about Jesus, he didn't think about himself they thought about what God the Father wanted and what people wanted. Two, Christ's servanthood, that he served others, that he had a servant's attitude and a servant's heart. And thirdly, Christ exemplified sacrifice. That he was willing to give his entire life for the world that we were living in. I thought it was a good way to understand that Jesus was not looking at his own interests, but the interests of his heavenly Father and for those that he was trying to save. Let's start with his selflessness. Consider the example of Jesus for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. They share the same essence, will, and purpose. When Jesus came to earth, he took on flesh and became like a man and was subject to all the things that man is subject to, but was without sin. He emptied himself. What does it mean that he emptied himself? I want you to think about uh, Christ in all of his glory. He's with the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is uh, crowned with majesty and glory, crown on his head, robe on his body, a scepter in his hand. He is being worshipped by both saints and angels as we sung here before. And then uh, he chooses by the will of the Father to come to earth. And he sets aside his glory. He sets aside the control of all things. And he becomes uh, in flesh human. Born of a virgin, born uh, uh, into a family as a carpenter's son. Think of that he emptied himself of all of his uh, reputation, of all his glory. 
And he didn't come down in, in glory and majesty seeking to be able to, to be worshipped in that moment, but rather he came into humble circumstances. He lived in a poor household. He lived among regular people. He lived in a town that didn't have a great reputation, a town called Nazareth, where everybody kind of said, ah, Nazareth, not a great place. And so he went there and emptied himself of what it meant to be the son of God, his title, his positions, his desires, in order that he might do the will of his heavenly father. He was God, but he didn't consider equality with God was something to be used to his own advantage. He took the position of a servant and became like a servant, became like a man, and even humbled himself to death on a cross. Jesus, the son of God, goes from being in heaven being full of glory and majesty, see at the right hand of the Father, and he comes to earth. And he didn't just come to earth as a man, he came as a servant. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that. The creator of the world, the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, the king of kings and lord of lords says, I didn't come here so I could be served and that I could be waited on hand and foot, but rather I came to serve so that I might give my life for the salvation of many. That's why he came. He served his father's purposes. He was obedient to the will of the father to preach the good news and to give the message that the father had given him. He also served people. He didn't just simply say like, listen, Jesus could have easily been like a guru, like a wise sage or a maharishi or a yogi sitting on a mountainside for people to seek wisdom from. Like people could go for miles around and they would climb this mountain to hopefully hear from this man, say, what do you have to say to me? But instead, Jesus went to where people were, went to where the need was, and if someone needed healing, he healed. He healed the sick, he cleansed the lepers, he raised the dead, he uh, you know, healed the disabled, he brought them back to life, he, he gave them something and he gave them courage and encouragement. He spoke the words of God's truth to them. He went wherever people were. Jesus cared for the outcast, the downtrodden, the forgotten of society. And he wasn't there to, to build a following and to be some kind of influencer who is well-liked or to be popular or even to be to the point where people would worship him uh, you know, and bow down before him. And even at times when people would do that, he would kind of say, you know, he would just lift them up and, and walk alongside them and minister to them. So he wasn't looking for influence or power, but he was looking for the opportunity to bring help and salvation to men. We have an example of Jesus' serving. And so Jesus is, in a great example of Jesus' humility is at the Last Supper. If we look at John chapter 13, and we can flip over to there, verses 12 through 17. John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. We see an example of Jesus serving. Now, I want you to put in context when this is happening. This is right before the Last Supper. Right before, and to put this in a timeline context, it's Thursday. Jesus celebrates the Passover dinner with his disciples early because he knows he's going to be put to death on Friday. And so he celebrates with them early. And so he has the Last Supper with them. In a moment, we'll be celebrating communion together, commemorating the death of Jesus, which is a picture of the Last Supper. 
It says, before he uh, even uh, began to partake of the meal together with them, it says in verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and sat down again. He said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, of course, that's what I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who has sent him. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus was setting an example for them. It was customary that if you went to someone's house, that a servant would wash your feet because you wore sandals, you walked around dusty roads, and so your feet got really dirty. And so before you would recline at the table, someone would take off your sandals, uh, wash your feet in a basin, and dry them with a towel. Now, this is something that the Jews themselves didn't even do. They hired a servant to do it because it was beneath them. And Jesus is here washing the disciples' feet as a sign of servitude, as a sign of humility to them. I want you to get the picture for a minute. The creator of the universe, who should have been waited on hand and foot, is at the feet of his disciples, the master before his followers, and washing their feet and wiping them off. Peter had trouble with that. He said, I, this is wrong. I should not be doing this. You, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus made clear to him, he says, if you, I don't wash your feet you don't have any part with me. Because what he was trying to teach Peter is that you got to set your pride aside and be humble and be willing to serve. And if this troubles you, then you can't be one of my followers. Interestingly enough, what the disciples were arguing about beforehand, and which they argued about often, was who's the greatest of the disciples. That's like asking who is the best of the worst team in baseball. <laughs> Think of the people that Jesus selected for his disciples. I say this often. I wouldn't choose those 12 men for my board. I wouldn't choose those 12 men for a, a football team. You know, they are not the best of the best. They are like outcasts. They are misfits. When you look at the description of each of them, you're like, how are these guys going to accomplish anything? But that's the way God works. You should take comfort in that. I take comfort in that. That God chooses people that are unlikely, that are underqualified, and then Christ takes them and makes them greater than they are. It's a wonderful thing. And so he chooses these 12, and they're busy arguing about who's the best of the worst. Who, who, who's going to be, like with Peter, James, and John, like we're in his inner circle, so we must be super close and super high on the, the pecking order. And maybe they're thinking when Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom, you know, even uh, James and John's mother came to them and says, you know, they didn't have the guts to ask him themselves, so they send mommy along. And mommy says to, to uh, you know, to Jesus, he says, you know, I have a request of you. Well, what's your request that my son would sit on your right hand and your left when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. And then his, you know, his disciples, James and John, are there. And he says, can they drink of the same cup that I drink? I'm like, sure, Jesus, put it on the table. I'll drink from that cup. But that was not the cup he was talking about. He was talking about the cup of suffering, the cup of death for the cause of Christ. And who was the first disciple who's martyred is James. And the book of Acts is one of the first disciples that's martyred, okay? So we have to be careful what we're asking for, okay? And so they're arguing about who's the greatest, who's the best, and Jesus says, let me show you who's the best in the kingdom. 
Let me show you the attitude you must have in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he washed their feet. And we have to have the nature of humility to say, like, Jesus, if nothing was beneath you as the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the Savior of the world, and you were willing to stoop to wash disciples' feet, how dare I ever say to anything that you or the church wants to do in me when you speak to me that I would say, no, that's beneath me. No, I can't do that. That's below me. When Jesus took the very nature of a slave to wash the disciples' feet. It's a very humbling sort of thing. Now let's look at uh, Philippians 2, verse 8 again. And so let's talk about the, the next part of Jesus' humility that says that, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself even further, went from being in heaven with God to being a man, to being a servant, and then dying a criminal's death on a cross. The cross is not the glamorous thing that we see today. The cross is not the, the, it was not the glamorous, like, you've got the gold cross hanging around your neck, ladies. It was not the piece of jewelry. In fact, if you wore that prior to the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, people are like, you're nuts. Why do you got a symbol of death around your neck? No one wanted this. No one wanted the cross. That was not something that people wanted. They wanted to avoid that if at all possible. And to die on the cross was to die a criminal's death. So think of like how far Jesus is coming down to be raised up again. Think of that he's coming from glory to humanity to servanthood to death on a cross. Can you go any lower? Yes, you can go in the grave. But think about that, that after the grave became the, the ascension again and being raised from humility up to glory. Being raised from a place of death and servanthood to being raised and being given a name that's above every other name. And that's how the kingdom of God works, that humility precedes glory. Write it down. Humility precedes glory. If you find things constantly uh, escaping your grasp in the kingdom, it's because you've got the wrong approach. We sometimes think, well, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, and the violence take it forcefully, and that's mine, so I take it. Humility precedes glory. If you are humble, in due time, he will lift you up. And we see that being played out in the next following verses there. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he give himself for us? Because he knew that we could not save ourselves. No amount of good works could save us. Nothing that we could do in our our own self could bring us salvation. So Christ gave himself for us sacrificially to the point that his blood covers all the penalty of sin from now until eternity. And that his blood and his sacrifice brings forgiveness for sins, not just any sins you've committed in the past, but the sins that you committed even before you walked in here this morning, and every sin that you'll commit going forward. That blood covers all of them. Well, you're saying, Pastor, should I not ask for forgiveness of sins? No. If we repent, if we, uh, if we seek forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 1, 9. So we have to be willing to ask God for forgiveness because even though we are forgiven, these offenses get in the way of our prayer life. These offenses get in the way of our fellowship and communion with God. We have to make sure we have a right heart before him when we serve. 
So Jesus is our example. How do we humble ourselves? By setting aside our own desire for glory and recognition, by taking on the attitude of a servant who is willing to serve, seeking no credit, no glory, just the joy of serving God and others, and that the believer would be so committed to Jesus that even if it meant giving up your life for him, you would do it. Let's look at verses 8 through 13 of Philippians, 9 through 13, I should say. It says, Then therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and giving him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to both will and do his good pleasure. Now, verse 12 is something that people get tripped up on all the time. It's like they're reading and then all of a sudden, well, it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And some have taken this to mean that I should be really fearful and concerned as to whether I'm saved or not. And that I need to be working unto my salvation, working for my salvation. He didn't say that. He said work on your salvation. There is a difference. Working for your salvation says, I need to do good works enough that God will receive me with favor, and then I will be forgiven, and then I will receive heaven. Working on your salvation says, I'm not perfect yet. You know the difference? Are you understanding what we're talking about this morning? Is that God wants you to work on your salvation, work on who you are, because he said, what do you just do? If you just take this one verse on its own, you say to yourself, okay, I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. You can look at that and say, I better keep working for God because maybe he'll accept me, maybe he won't. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's about. He said, look, Jesus took on the nature of the servant. Your attitude must be the same as his. He also went on to say, too, you know, the context here in Philippians is that we have a group of Christians in Philippi who are under intense pressure from the Roman government to abandon their faith. And so he says, don't let those things cause you to abandon your faith. You abandon your faith, you forfeit your salvation. So work on those things. Work through these things. Don't work for these things. You're saying, well, you know, pastor, don't, what about James talks about faith without works is dead. So like, shouldn't we be doing works? Aren't works a part of it? Yes, works are a fruit and a product of salvation. It's not the means of salvation. Because if it was just the means of salvation, it would just be the Old Testament law. You could, if you could work your salvation, Jesus didn't need to die. Because if you just followed the law, if you just were a good doobie, and you just did the right things at the right time, and you just went to worship at the time you're supposed to, and observed all the feasts, and did all the things that you're supposed to do, and not break the Ten Commandments, you could earn your salvation. But because you can't, that's why Jesus came. And so there's no point where we can work for our salvation. We can only work on it. Works are a product of our faith. As we love God, as we serve him, as we do what he wants, then we start to see things that are done for the glory and honor of God. Don't get me wrong. Works should accompany our salvation, but they're fruits from the tree. The fruit comes from the tree. The fruit is not the tree. I'll say it again. Fruits come from the tree. The fruit is not the tree. 
You can't get the fruit unless you have the tree. Well, you can plant it and wait for it to grow, sure. Every fruit has its seed in it. But you can't get a fruit from that fruit, okay? You have to allow your faith to grow, and as you serve Christ, then fruits, the godly fruits of uh, godly character, the fruits of the Spirit, begin to appear in your life, the fruits of service. So sometimes we get caught up on these things. We get caught up on this one verse, and people get tripped up by it. But look at what it said in the previous verses. We sometimes get stuck on 12, but look at verses 9 and 10. And in those prior verses, uh, Jesus talks about that, uh, Paul talks about that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Both on the earth, in heaven, and under the earth shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul is speaking of the future when Christ comes on the day of the Lord and evil is done away with and he judges every sin and sets every wrong right. And on that day, every enemy of God will be brought to submission. Paul is admonishing the Christian. He's like, listen, you know, uh, Jesus died on the cross. He has risen again. He was given a name that's above every other name. And every single creature that draws breath, every, uh, every principality and power that's in the earth and under the earth, one day will have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just the people who are saved, but even, though, even the devil himself will have to bow his knee and grumble to himself Jesus is the Lord. He will have to admit that he is defeated. Every demon in hell will have to bow a knee and say, Jesus is Lord. I don't know about you. You should get excited about that, that the victory is already written ahead of time and that one day when he returns, every single person, even the person that says, you know, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist, and they might have choice words about what they think about God, the church, and Jesus, even that person will have to bow his knee and admit that he was wrong in the presence of the Lord. So what is Paul saying in this? Is that while we are here, while we are here on this earth, while we have the ability and the will to do so, let's choose to follow Jesus. Let's choose to believe upon him. While it is our choice to do so, a choice that leads to faith and salvation, but once you die, you no longer have that choice. Once Christ comes back, there is no opportunity for a second chance. Your second and third and fourth chances and fifth chances are already here right now. You're in a period and an age of grace. Don't squander grace. Because God has given it to you now, but there will come a day where you won't be able to do that. And Paul says, you should be afraid of that day. You should have your mind focused on that. If you're even thinking about abandoning the faith, just know that the day is coming which every knee and every uh, tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Even the Romans, even the people that oppress you, they will have to bow the knee to the Lord God Almighty. There are two pictures of Christ in the Scripture one as merciful Savior, and the other as conquering king. One is merciful Savior, and one is conquering king. While Jesus walked this earth, when he spoke and he preached, when the, the gospel went out, when the church was in existence, the, the message, the good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness for sins and there is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the message of the merciful Savior is present. So we see the picture of the merciful Savior. But we also see in Revelation, we also see, as Peter mentions too in his gospel too, that one day Christ will return and he will come as conquering king. He will be 
in robes of white with sword drawn, with a, a crown on his head, and that he will ride into the world that we live in to be able to establish his kingdom forever, but he will do so as a conquering king. So the question we must ask ourselves, do we want to bow the knee in surrender or do we want to bow our knee in submission? Which Christ do we want to see when that day comes? Do we want to see him as merciful Savior or do we want to see him as conquering king? Now I want you to look at the verse that's after that verse where it talks about that we should work on our own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 says this, For it's God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. Part of our salvation is dying to ourselves and doing God's will in our life. So when it comes to working out our salvation, it's not about working for our salvation or earning our means to salvation because we could never do that. Instead, it's allowing God to work in us to be more like Christ. Paul talks about that it's God who works in us to will and to do. Ephesians 2.10, a similar letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians while he was in prison, says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what he's saying is that, is that when we choose to follow Christ, when Christ is the focus of our life, when we get our eyes off our own interests and, 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 and fighting with one another, and we focus on the will of God, and as Pastor Chuck Smith says, is that to, to, to will and to do means that you love what God loves and you do what God would do in the situation, that be, you become Christ-like in that focus, that when you love God and serve him, you will do what he wants, even at times where it's inconvenient. So what does it mean to will and to do? It, when it becomes your purpose to do the works that God has already prepared for you in advance to do. He's already prepared you for them. And he already has the works set up and in mind for you. That I want you to think about that this morning, that he has good works, that he has purpose for you from the beginning, that you are God's workmanship, you are God's masterpiece, and that he's created things for you to do in advance, things that he's seen that you will do for his glory. So what does it mean to will and to do? It means that whenever there's an opportunity to be God's hand extended to someone else, we should do it. Are we thinking of God's will that way? Are we thinking of one another and others in regards to God's plan for them? It's when we look to God's will with whoever we come in contact with. So that every day that when you come in contact with somebody, you said, you know, what does God want me to do in their life? Does God want me to share Christ with this person? Does God want me to demonstrate his love to them? Sharing the good news of salvation. It's about doing good for those who are in need and helping those who have no help. The love of Christ at its core is a, is a gospel of salvation and compassion. But compassion without the gospel is just that you're a nice person. And the gospel without compassion is just cold and callous. But when we pair the two together, we can make a difference in someone's life so that they can find God. They can find salvation. They can know who Jesus is. They can find forgiveness for sins and a transformation for their life if we just do God's will 
over our own and we love them as Jesus would and do the works that God already has in mind for you to do. I'm gonna wrap this up here. Paul visits this idea of thinking of each other again in verses 14 through 18. So we can just flip over to 14 through 18. So again, I hope this helps. Like, remember, we look at verse 12 and like, you know, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we just take that one verse, we get really tripped up on it, really stuck on it. But everything prior to and everything following says, stop thinking about yourself. Stop arguing with each other. Stop fighting with each other. Stop worrying about what the world does and instead focus on me and be like Christ. Verse 14, 18, he follows up with these instructions. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Oof. All things? Really? Paul, all? Like without, like even when you're in the grocery line? Even when you're waiting in the doctor's office, when you wait for an hour to see the doctor, and then they bring you to another room to have you wait again for a half an hour, but if you're late by 15 minutes, you, they cancel your appointment? You mean even thanking God for that, even, even looking at that without complaining and disputing? Yes. You know, what about there are people in the church that they are different from me politically? Do, should I do that without complaining and disputing? Yes. If there are people in the church that, you know, like a style of worship but don't like another style of worship, should I do that without complaining and disputing? Absolutely. It means that we should set aside the things that make us be in disagreement and lack unity and instead focus on what are we united in. Listen, I might think you're a little weird, but can I love you as Jesus would? and recognize you as my brother and sister in Christ and move forward. You might be high maintenance, but can I still love you as Jesus would? You might think you're a know-it-all and always have something to say, but can I, I love you and, and, and be your brother and sister in Christ without disputing and fighting with you? Yes, in fact, that's the sign of Christ's maturity in you, that someone can just lob one of those verbal grenades your way, like, whatever. Seriously? You could stand there with someone who, in a backhanded sort of way, literally will just insult you to your face. And you know what they're getting at, too. The way you raise your family, your own particular moral standards, your lack of biblical intelligence, whatever the case might be. And you might know exactly what they're getting at. And just look at it and go, instead of going, what'd you say? Instead of going back at them, you know, throw hands, you know. Instead of doing that, just being like, I see what you're doing, but you're down here in this. I'm not going down there with you. I'm keeping it up here. Take the high road in all things. Take the high road in all things. I'm getting a little off here, but I need to tell you this. Take the high road in all things, and God will see justice to your cause, and he will expose all things that are false and all things that are on the wrong pretense, and all things that are done with malice and revenge, and he'll expose all those things so that they, people see what a person is truly like, and when you choose not to go down that road, when God exposes those things, you won't be guilty of the same things that they did. Instead, you will shine like stars, which is actually something that Paul says. Going on here, it says that you might become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, that I might rejoice in the day of Christ, 
They have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For this same reason, also be glad and rejoice with me. So don't uh, be a complainer or a disputer. Some people love to debate, love to argue. That's not the mark of a Christian. Live with integrity in a world that's wicked and perverse. This world is constantly pushing the boundary lines further and further away. You can see it on the commercials on TV. You can hear it in the things that are on the radio. You can see it in the schools that, that you send your kids to. And the, the standard keeps just moving back. And, and so it's like, he says, I want you to shine in the midst of darkness. Don't go hide in the darkness. Don't go underground, but rather shine like stars. Shine like lights in the darkness and shine as an example for all. Bring the light of the gospel to the world we live in here. And that we should hold fast onto what God's word says. So again, we come back to this, is that the whole focus of this is to think of others better than yourself. And that Paul gives examples of being a servant and being humble. In fact, he goes on to talk about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. That Epaphroditus even got sick while he was ministering to Paul, and he almost died. That God was gracious, and that he survived and recovered. Examples of servanthood. People who thought not of themselves, but were thinking of Paul, or thinking of the church, or thinking of others. Our first question that we must ask ourselves, when was the last time we thought of others first, instead of us first? Whether that involves going to church, well, I deserve a day off. We all deserve a day off, okay? Are we thinking of ourselves first, or are we thinking of others? Are we thinking of what God wants and his will, or are we thinking of ourselves only? When was the last time you thought about, well, my brother and sister in Christ, how are they doing, and what can I do for them? Or when was the last time you thought of, how can I share the gospel with somebody, my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers, and you thought of them in that way, and you say, God, what's your will for this situation? What do you want to do and use me for? When we do this, we honor God. When we do this, we give him glory and praise. When we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord in due season, he will lift us up. But we can't do anything for God without unity and humility. Every one of our efforts will fall short because we're fighting with each other or that we're undermining one another and the kingdom of God can't go forward. Now listen, this is not a message about, just listen to Pastor Dan unquestioningly. It's not about that. It's about asking ourselves, what part of me is getting in the way of what God might want to do in me? Because at the end of the day, it's all about what God is going to be doing in us, through us, and through his church. Let's see what God will do when we truly serve him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Can I pray with you and pray for you right now? Let's just bow our heads for just a moment as we consider what Paul has just written to us. Jesus emptied himself of all the things that he had in order to do the will of the Father, to walk and live in obedience. We need to live and walk in obedience to Christ. We need to live and serve him, laying aside everything else. Have you done that this morning? 
Has that been at work in your heart? Can you honestly say that at the end of the day, you have done all those things? And if not, maybe it's time to rededicate yourself, recommit yourself to Christ once more and to do what he wants above all else, and to do what the Lord wants above all else. So we just do that right now. Will you pray with me? So Father, we just ask today, Lord God, that you would help us Help us to follow you and to follow your example. Lord, you desire that we would be people that are about your will and about your kingdom and about your purposes. Lord, will you work in our hearts this morning as we draw closer to you. Lord, help us to die to ourselves, our own desires, our own ambition, our own ego, and and choose to live and love and serve you and one another. Lord, you have great things in store for us great works that you want us to do and things that you want to do through your church and through for your kingdom. Help us to be humble and be willing to look to one another and to look to you. Keep us from fighting with each other. Instead, help our hearts to be set upon things above. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.